Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 110. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's word. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what we've seen already this morning. Uh, the good gift of life that you've given for these young children. And we thank you for that. We thank you that they will uh, have the opportunity to have uh, men and women of this church come alongside them and uh, the partner in their discipleship. And thank you especially that they have parents who have this morning dedicated to raising them in faithfulness. Father, I pray that as we turn our eyes to Psalm 110, that we'll be able to look at it with, uh, with eyes towards the gospel, with eyes towards your character, with eyes towards your plan of redemption, with eyes towards what you are doing even here at the church at Trace Crossing. Thank you for our time together that we have this morning to fellowship with one another, to come together as brothers and sisters in the name of your son. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. All right, you could be seated. So uh, I'm sure as most of you know, uh, but for those of you who might not, uh, might be guests, we've, we've been walking through the book of Daniel. And Daniel 1 through 6 makes a pretty clean break uh, between Daniel 7 through 12. So as, as Matthew has said, uh, we're taking a break from that sermon series this week. So here I am, uh, the break this week. So uh, anyway, I sent Matthew a full sermon manuscript, but I don't think that one made it in there. Uh, but... Anyway, so I've been fascinated lately with the idea of being able to look at God's world, to know God's world, to enjoy God's world, to love God's world, uh, just to be able to go out and look at the fact that flowers are multicolored and it's beautiful. Uh, the fact that dogs and cats are soft and, you know, fun to pet and lovable. And uh, this is the fact that, that we see uh, life being created, that we see uh, relationships between uh, other people that blossom into such good things. But you don't have to look at the world for very long before you see that it's poisoned by sin and by the effects of the fall. It doesn't take a long time of looking at the world and loving the world to see that it is not necessarily easy to love God's world. Because 
We live in a post-fall world. We live in a world that is affected by sin. And for us to avoid diving into complete cynicism, we need a hope. We need hope of a Messiah. And that is what we find in Psalm 110 this morning. Hope of a Messiah. So we began a long, long, long range uh, series preaching through uh, the book of the Psalms. And so we began that by taking two messianic psalms this year. So earlier we looked at Psalm 2 and how it proclaims a coming Messiah. This week, we're looking at Psalm 110, how it proclaims a coming Messiah. So since they're similar, since they're similar in nature, similar in theme, similar in outlook, they are both Messianic Psalms, they're pretty similar in content. Psalm 2 is pretty thematically similar to Psalm 110. It's similar in language. I bet you noticed a lot of even the same words being used as this Messiah of Psalm 110 is described that they would have been in Psalm 2. Both of them we see a warrior king. We see an agent of the Lord sent by God into his world to accomplish God's will on earth. In both of them, we see the Messiah reigning powerfully, even over his enemies. We see him uh, leading his people out together. We see him receiving authority directly from God himself. And we put all of these things together. We, We fuse them all. We see the promise of one who would come from God, who would be extraordinarily great. We see the hope of a Messiah. And this would have been encouraging to the uh, Old Testament believers. As they see one king come and go, they, they may say, oh, this was not the one. This was not a good, righteous king. This was not God's Messiah, but maybe this one will be the one. And so you roll through this list of kings, these kings who would come, and he would rule in the name of the Lord. And I'm sure it was easy to maintain this hope of a Messiah as these kings rolled through because they could say, well, maybe it will be the next one. But then we come to the book of Daniel. We come to the end of the book of Kings. We come to the exile. Babylon shows up at the gate. They come and they take the king They take him back to Babylon. They smash the government of Judah. They destroy the temple. And they take all of the young people, all of the promising young people back with them. And at that point, I imagine the hope of the Messiah would have been much more challenging. I guess the question at this point for them, for those in the book of Daniel, for Daniel and his companions, might have been, How could God fulfill their messianic hope in Babylon? And in a sense, that's our question too. In a sense, we can look at the same thing. As I said, we look at the world for not very long before we begin to see all the warts. You know, I stress scroll Twitter every half hour. It's a habit of mine. It's uh, just the regular pattern of life for me. And you go through there and you see all kinds of controversies and scandals and disappointing stories and anti-Christian sentiment and all volumes of just general badness. But that's just Twitter, you know. But 
It's not just Twitter. I've known people to be involved in fatal car wrecks. I've known a young couple to lose their infant child. Tragedy is all around us, and if we're not careful, we can say, how could God fulfill my hope, our hope, of a Messiah in Babylon? Are we wasting away in Babylon, or is there hope for us? Well, I believe that Psalm 110 tells us, told Daniel, tells us an unequivocal yes, there is so as we look at Psalm 110 itself, there are various theories about how this psalm would have been used. And that's because there's nothing uh, outside of Scripture that tells us how Psalm 110 would have been used. There's no inscription at the top. It just says that it's a psalm of David. Nothing that tells us how it would have been used. Uh, some believe that it was a coronation song, a song that would have been sung at the coming of a new king, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, some believe that it might have been more of a battle hymn or a hymn that would be sung as the Israelite people went out into battle, which makes sense as well. But what's clear of this is that this is defining a king. This is a royal psalm. It gives testimony to the king of Israel. It, is, uh, it looks toward the ideal Israelite monarch and his ideal relationship with the Lord. And so as we look at the structure of it, uh, Trimper Longman uh, says that we can kind of divide it into two different stanzas, so to speak, or two different, uh, two different sections. And it's divided by two promises, one in verse 1 and the other in verse 4, and then two declarations of victory, of coming victory by this Messiah. The first of those in verses 2 and 3, and the second declaration of victory being in verses 5 through 7. And so I want us, as we look at this psalm together this morning, to follow that pattern, to look at, uh, look at both of these promises, both of these victories, and ask, what is this telling us about God's Messiah? And then at that point, we will be able to draw some conclusions. So the first thing that we see here in Psalm 110, in verse 1, is the first promise. That is, the exalted place given to God's king in verse 1. We see that this is an exalted place given to God's king first because of the exalted language, the exalted title specifically that David uses to describe the king, to describe the Messiah. He opens it up by saying, the Lord says to my Lord, which is admittedly in English a bit wordy. You know, the, the Lord says to my Lord, you know, somebody's got a Lord and then he's got a Lord. And uh, there's just like this string of Lords. But in, uh, in Hebrew, of course, it is, it makes a lot more sense. The first Lord there, which in your copy of scripture is probably written out in, in all caps, is the four letter name for God, Yahweh. So this is unmistakably a reference to it, the Lord, as in a reference to God himself. Very clear there. And then uh, God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, this is probably a reference to David's Lord, as, as we'll see. But the word used there is Adonai, which is probably a lot closer to actually our word Lord. Uh, it's probably a lot more of a reference to that kind of word. But anyway, uh, that word Adonai would have been a title of immense respect 
So David is essentially giving a title of immense respect to this Messiah. Now, that's significant that David, of all people, would give a title like this to the Messiah. Jesus actually noticed that in Mark chapter 12 as he was uh, confronting some of the uh, religious leaders as he was teaching in the temple. In Mark 12, 35, it says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus is here quoting this psalm. And he's doing so to confront this idea, apparently, that had been going around in Jesus' day, that the Messiah to come was somehow, in some sense, less than David. But Jesus directs him to see that, no, 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 David himself calls him Lord. David provides this exalted title to the Messiah. Now, that itself is very significant. Because the scriptures speak of David for all of his faults as a man after God's own heart. A man who pursued God, a man who accomplished much uh, as, a, as a poet, as a king, as a warrior, as an administrator. Uh, and so for David to look to this coming Messiah and say, you are my Lord, is to say a lot about who this person would be. So we see that the Messiah has an exalted place because of the title that David gives. But we see also that he is offered a place of prominence at God's right hand. And so we have the phrase, of course, in English, you know, such as such is my right-hand man, which is just to say that uh, someone would be like the top guy behind someone who is at the very top of some uh, organization or something like that. And so it's pretty, you know, it comes down to our time as well, but uh, this would have been a place of extreme prominence in Middle Eastern culture. Uh, the person who is seated at the right hand of the king is just directly below the king. It is a place of high honor and high prominence. So for God to look at this Messiah and say, sit at my right hand, is to place him in a spot of extreme prominence, of extreme uh, power, position, and prestige. So we see that a promise is given to this Messiah to show that he is God's exalted king. And so now we move on to see the first stanza of victory of the Messiah. Verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So what we see in this first declaration of the Messiah's victory is uh, that he has authority coming from God and obedience from his subjects. So verse 2 says, The Lord sends from Zion your mighty scepter. So this is essentially a way of saying that God has given a right to rule to his Messiah, that God has sent his scepter. You remember the same language was used 
uh, to describe the Messiah's authority in Psalm 2, as it described him ruling with a, a iron scepter. Well, here in the same way, the Lord is sending forth this scepter. So as the Messiah rules, as he rules as king, he is doing so directly from the authority of God. He has all authority given to him. There is no authority that he lacks because God himself is given his authority to rule. Specifically, it says that he is to rule in the midst of his enemies. The word translated there, rule, is probably different than how we would understand rule to be uh, in, in our culture. You know, we hear the word rule, we can almost think of like maintenance, you know, just maintaining a kingdom, keeping a kingdom up, uh, making sure the kingdom is, is established, that sort of thing. But here, this word rule is meant to rule even with uh, objection, with uh, the, those who you are ruling over, not really wanting you to rule over them. But that's what the Messiah does. His authority is so great, being sent from God, that he is able to rule in those who are not necessarily willing for him to rule among them. He has been given authority, so he rules in the midst of his enemies, but also he has loyal subjects that offer themselves freely. Verse 3 uses that exact phrase, your people will offer themselves freely. At this point, uh, when I was reading through the passage, when I was studying, I kind of started to wonder, what, what does that mean? What does he mean to offer themselves freely? Because what initially came to my mind when I'm thinking Old Testament, uh, someone's offering something. I'm thinking a sacrifice, that the people offer themselves uh, as a sacrifice freely. But given the context and given this exact phrase, uh, it's used again earlier, Judges 5.1, 1, to refer to a great military victory. So that's probably what's being referred to here is that the people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in service so that the subjects of the Messiah are willing participants in his kingdom, giving themselves over in service to him. And so we see that this Messiah reigns with the authority of God. He rules over unwilling subjects and over those who are very much willing uh, to be part of his kingdom. And this is where the Messiah starts to look a little different from our normal conception of a king. We can see kings throughout history that look a little bit like this. You know, I think of Alexander the Great, uh, who had people who were loyally devoted to him, but also conquered people who were very much opposed to him. Uh, but Alexander the Great grew old, and he died at a pretty young age, and his kingdom uh, did not last forever. It was significant, but in the grand scheme of the world, small. This Messiah will rule over all of his enemies, and he will have those freely giving themselves over to him. So many that it describes themselves, uh, describes his subjects as from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours, as in they are so numerous, they are like drops of dew on the grass in the morning. And so we see this picture of Messiah start to form. He is a mighty king ruling through the authority of God at his right hand, so exalted that David uses the term Lord to describe him, and he has willing subjects serving under him, ruling over those who were even unwilling. 
But now we come to something a little bit different as we see the second promise in verse 4. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is what makes this psalm unique. This description of the king as priest. So we see here that the king is offered an eternal promise, an eternal priesthood. And that's when things start to look a little different from your everyday uh, line of David king. Things start to look a little bit different here. Because, first, he is offered to be a priest forever. So this Messiah is offered to be a priest without end. Also, the Messiah is offered to be a priest as he's a king. This would not be normal for Israelite kings to be both uh, king and priest, to occupy both offices. They were separate offices, but this king is different. This king is much different from those who had come before him as he reigns and he rules and as he intercedes for his subjects. He is not merely a king lording over those beneath him, but he is one who uh, is a priest forever. So we see the second promise given to this Messiah. And the last thing we see in this passage is the second stanza of victory, verses 5 through 7, that describe the total reign of this king. Those verses say, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings. On the day of his wrath, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is another one of those sections like Psalm 2 that is just very graphic and very aggressive as it describes the powerful reign of the Messiah. Uh, I told somebody this week that, that everyone's going to think, like, I, I love preaching about, like, uh, like, angry kings and, you know, smashing chiefs and rulers and just breaking people and filling nations with corpses. And uh, I don't. Uh, it's just how this has worked out. Uh, but anyway... Uh, So we see here, though, that this Messiah has a total comprehensive reign. We see that uh, he is shattering kings, he is shattering chiefs over the whole earth, that he's executing judgment over all the nations, filling them with corpses, uh, that he is exercising a dominion that goes over all the earth. And so we see that this Messiah is someone very different than the Israelite kings. They would have been a small, defensive nation. They would have grown to a so-so size at the height of their kingdom with Solomon. But this Messiah is reigning over all the earth. This Messiah is fundamentally someone different, someone new. And so I come back to where I began as we talk about a hope for Messiah. I can understand, as we look through this, how the people of Israel would have hoped against hope for someone from God. They knew that God is true. They knew that God is good. 
And so they could look to this description of one who would come and say, that sounds wonderful. I can't wait for this Messiah to come. I have hope that even though my life may be difficult now, even though Israel may be subjected to Babylon, that I have hope that things will be better because God has promised a Messiah. So I guess I'll take the cat out of the bag at this point. And uh, as I did in Psalm 2, it's it's not like you didn't see it coming, but this description of the Messiah, I believe, quite clearly refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. This description of the Messiah is a reference to the coming reign, the coming priesthood of Jesus Christ. And we know that uh, in part because Jesus himself uh, called himself the Messiah. It's pretty unmistakable in this passage that a Messiah is being described. As we read from Mark 12, uh, the people were expecting a Messiah from this passage. And so Jesus uh, himself proclaimed uh, that he was the Messiah. We see also that the New Testament writers, when describing Jesus, when looking back to Jesus, quote this psalm frequently as they describe the Messiah. So we can see with clarity that this psalm is describing Christ as Messiah. And so we have hope of a particular kind. We don't just have hope of someone who might come or someone who will come, but we look with hope to someone who has come and someone who has promised to come again. We look with certainty, not towards just an office. We don't look just towards the office of a Messiah, of someone, but we look to a person, Jesus Christ, to be our hope for a Messiah. Our messianic hope in Babylon comes through Jesus. So the question at this point becomes, what does Psalm 110 say about Jesus? I, say, I think that basically there are two things. First, Christ is the king of all. Second, Christ is our priest forever. So first, we see that Christ in Psalm 110 is the king of all. Now, whenever we talk about how the, the disciples conceived of uh, a Messiah, we always reference the fact that they were expecting a political king, that they were uh, waiting for some political Messiah to come and restore Israel to a world, world power, to make them the world power. And it seems like whenever we talk about the disciples uh, expecting the Messiah, we kind of do it with like this mental eye roll. Um, where we're like, how could they have not known better? How could they have not known that it wouldn't be a political king? Like, come on, disciples. But I don't blame them, to be honest with you. As we look at Psalm 2 and then Psalm 110, what is unmistakably clear is that this Messiah is king. That is clear. This Messiah is one who rules from the power of God, who is sent by God to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we got in Jesus. Jesus came and he was born of Mary and he grew up and lived in a normal estate. He was a carpenter, a normal Galilean. But then he began to preach and proclaim 
about the coming kingdom of God. In fact, that the kingdom had broken in, that he was the king. And so he lived a life making that claim again and again, and eventually, eventually, he was crucified for it. And so they took a crown of thorns, and they placed it on his head in an attempt to mock him, but actually declared a great truth about Christ. That he had come to bring the kingdom of God, not with spears, not with armor, but with his blood. And to create a kingdom of people, not gathered under a constitution or a flag, but under the cross. He created a spiritual kingdom as he reigns in the hearts of men and women across our world. But it's not merely a spiritual kingdom, because Christ has promised to come back and be the actual king of all, to set right what is wrong. He has promised that he will return in power, as in, like Psalm 110, to reign and to fix this sin-sick, sad, defeated, post-fall world, to set it right. I do not know, I am no clue for most of you, what may be going on in your life, or what tragedies you may face, or what difficulties may be bad. But for those of us who offer ourselves freely to Christ, I can tell you one thing. It will get better. It may not be this week. I may not heal you of your disease. I may not fix the circumstance you're facing right now. But I do know one thing, that it will get better. And I can proclaim that with truth because Jesus is Lord. And Jesus will come back to set right all that's wrong, including what's ailing you even now. So we have hope for a Messiah. We have hope for one who will reign as God's king and will set right all that is wrong. So Christ is the king of all. But we see also clearly, uh, as in verse 4, that this Messiah is a priest forever. God has sworn and will not change his mind that Christ is a king forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, uh, at this point, you might be wondering, as I did, what does it mean that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Uh, what does that mean? Well, I think we can get all the relevant info we need from Hebrews chapter 7, uh, in verses 1 through 3. You can turn there, because we're going to be in, uh, looking at some of this section of Hebrews a pretty good bit. Uh, but Hebrews 7 uh, speaks to uh, Melchizedek to some extent. Uh, verses 1 through 3 say, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So how is this uh, Melchizedek similar to Christ? How is he a priest in the same order? Well, first we see that this priest, Melchizedek, is a king and a priest. 
So I said that much of the Davidic line, much of the Aaronic line, uh, you know, they didn't cross paths. You know, the priests didn't become kings. Kings didn't become priests. But Melchizedek is both a king and a priest, as Christ is both a king and a priest. As he uh, occupies his priestly office, he does so as one who reigns with authority as well. So we look and see that uh, Melchizedek is a king and a priest, but we see also that Melchizedek is a priest forever. So Christ is not a priest that is uh, going to stop being a priest anytime soon. Uh, Christ is, occupies our place as high priest forever. As Rory mentioned, uh, God has sworn and will not change his mind. Christ is a priest forever. Uh, we work for a time, we change careers, we retire, uh, we go down uh, to death, but here, Christ is priest forever. Christ will never stop interceding for us. Christ will never stop being our priest. You don't have to worry that tomorrow Christ won't be your priest anymore. He will be your priest forever. He is our high priest eternally. So, now we just have to ask, what does it mean? How does Christ act in his role of priest? Well, conveniently, uh, a lot of that was explained in our Hebrews reading uh, that we read earlier. Well, we can see through uh, Hebrews 5, through, or excuse me, 4, 14 through uh, 7, the end of chapter. We're not going to read all that. Don't, don't get worried about that. Uh, but what we can see is that uh, Christ offered a sacrifice on our behalf, that he has brought us near to God and that he intercedes for us continually. So Christ, in his office as priest, has offered a sacrifice on our behalf. So that is a normal duty of priests to God. Verse, excuse me, in Hebrews 5, 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so as Christ occupies this office of priests, he offers sacrifice on our behalf. Now, the way he offers sacrifices is very different, as we could see in 7, 26 through 27, Hebrews. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So the priests of the line of Aaron would spend much of their time every day offering sacrifices continually, one after another, after another, after another, after another. There would be one great day uh, where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and, uh, and uh, offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. But it would start again, a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice, and they would roll through this calendar again and again, offering sacrifices. That is not the sacrifice that Christ has offered. Christ offered up himself to be our sacrifice, to be our substitute. Christ is a high priest that does not take an animal here and bring it to the Lord, but Christ is a high priest that takes himself, presents himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. 
And so Christ is a much better priest because he offers himself as sacrifice, a perfect, unblemished, eternal sacrifice. So Christ has offered a sacrifice on our behalf, and he has also brought us near to God. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love this truth that God has been brought near to us, that we have been brought near to God by Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He lived fully God, fully man, able to bridge the gap between us and God. Most of our experience in Babylon, most of our experience in suffering comes being far from God, feeling far from God. But we have the privilege of being led by the hand by our great high priest into the very presence of God as we are reunited with him. We have been separated from the fall by our sin, but we can be brought near to God because he is our high priest. Christ is our high priest that has united us to him. So we see that Christ has offered a sacrifice on our behalf and that he's brought us near to God and finally that he intercedes for us continually. And Hebrews 7.25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ has brought us near to God, and he continues in the presence of God to make intercession for us. As I make intercession for myself, as I pray to God, it's often weak, it's often unfocused, and it's often uh, much shorter, covering much less than I wish it would be. But as Christ, our perfect, great high priest, makes intercession for us, we have no concern about the quality of that intercession. He makes perfect intercession for us in the presence of God always and continually. So we see that as Christ occupies the office of our priest, that he's offered a sacrifice on our behalf, he's brought us near to God, and he intercedes for us continually. And so when we put this all together, we have the picture of an incredible Messiah. We look at Jesus Christ, King and Priest, one who has brought us the kingdom of God, who has secured our salvation, and one who maintains that salvation in the presence of God always. He is our King and our priest. And so as we look at the world, as we know the world, as we love the world, it will inevitably be mixed with sorrow. But it's not sorrow without hope. It's not sorrow without joy in the midst of it. Because even as we look at the fall, the effects of sin, however that plays out specifically in your life, we may have hope of a Messiah, of one who has come as king and as priest, and one who will come again to reign forever. We can have hope in tragedy, 
because we have hope in a great Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have not left us in our sin. You've not left us in the effects of our sin, but you have offered as salvation through the blood of your Son, through our great and our incredible Messiah. We can have hope, not because we are great, but because you are and you have sent your Messiah. Help us this week in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, to look to the truth of your grace revealed in Christ. We can have hope in you. God, thank you. Be with us. Declare your name through us. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Let's sing it together and sing in response to that truth that's been preached.